long ago, during episode 7 of series 4, and in a number of other places, I said that we tend to live in the grip of self-reinforcing, self-authenticating systems, but that that doesn't necessarily entail belief in a conspiracy engineered by conspirators. I'm now going to suggest that dualities may help us with some of the more obvious difficulties and limitations that this situation creates, inasmuch as dualities offer us different ways of looking at the same thing. The particular passage in question runs like this. So this is a quote. The system becomes self-confirming, self-reinforcing, self-authenticating, self-immunising against any suggestion that things could be different. The central point of particularly this episode, that's of episode 7 of series 4, but it's really been running through all the episodes we've done so far, is that there is, and let me repeat, a conspiracy without conspirators. Nobody, in other words, end of quote, nobody, in other words, is specifically to be blamed for this situation. It is a largely inevitable consequence of the fact that our systems must, to some level or other, authenticate themselves, be self-confirming and, in a sense, circular. The only way we can hope to maintain anything like consistency and internal coherence is if systems self-refer and use the persuasiveness of their total integrated outcomes to reinforce or challenge the appropriateness of their assumptions, using aversion of what we've called before modus tolendo tollens, which could be put in everyday terms as, if these are the conclusions we are inevitably come to, necessarily come to, logically come to, but conclusions we dislike or deplore, there must be something wrong with the foundational assumptions that have given rise to them. That's modus tolendo tollens in a nutshell. If the conclusions are wrong and there are no mistakes in the argument, then the assumptions must be wrong. This feedback is essentially the same as the one that David Hume refers to, where we look at the results of our reason as driven by our passions as they reflect our constitutions, the kinds, in other words, of human being we are, and on that basis decide whether we like them and approve of them or not. But we do well to acknowledge with Bertrand Russell that Believing what it's best for us collectively to believe or do isn't what always motivates everyone. That for some people, being right or being thought right 
or thinking themselves right, clinging to a reputation for being right that is fraudulent but confers social status or ensures a gaggle of sycophantic disciples, that's far more important than uncovering the truths that might otherwise be the best for us, the best things by which to live and breathe. So appeal to the self-authenticating rightness of a position or a theory or a worldview or a claim is a bit of a two-edged sword, as likely to be wielded by those with only themselves in mind and being thought right, as it is by those genuinely convinced that the system that they're advocating and they think is self-authenticating really is the best we can do right now. One might think that the way to escape this internal dilemma would be to abandon any appeal to self-authentication to regard it and render it illegitimate. But unfortunately, it's difficult to do that because systems, because they're circular, must be self-authenticating since there isn't anywhere outside the system from which a source of authentication can be found or looked for. So systems have to be taken to authenticate themselves because there's no way they can be authenticated from anywhere else. This may shock us, but it's a reality and, insofar as there are such things, a fact. Someone, I suppose, may well ask how, if all systems are circular, we can possibly justify preferring one to the other or even compare one with another. Because from inside one system, we are scarcely in a position to assess the comparative suitability of another one, not least because we will inescapably privilege the system we've already adopted over it and been trained, will have been trained in the modes of thinking, the assumptions, the conceptions that our own system endorses. Other systems will always seem inferior from inside a self-authenticating circular system we've already chosen, because otherwise, why would we choose it? Why would we have chosen it? Why would we go on choosing it? And of course, there is a point here that we might be prompted to reconsider our affiliation to it, once we perceive that it's not necessarily doing the business, doing what we want. And that takes us back to modus tolendo tollens. If we find that the system in which we are living, that the way we are living our lives, if you like, our entire life philosophy and worldview, leads to ways of life, situations, subjective states, affective states, states of the world we dislike or deplore or realise to be unsustainable, all of the above probably, then there must be something wrong with the system. And so there would be a prompt 
an encouragement to revise it, to break out of it. And that, of course, goes back to the example we chose many episodes, hundreds of episodes ago, of Otto Neurath's ship that needs to be repaired while it's still floating on the sea. Neither, I suppose we should say, having said that, should we underestimate the attractions of self-authenticating systems with effective immunization strategies that are capable of nullifying all attacks upon them. They can make us feel secure, grounded, invulnerable, and therefore strong and even superior to others, because after all, our system is obviously better than others for all sorts of reasons, including that it's more comprehensive, better authenticated, more extensively tried and tested, more widely adopted, more humane, moral, just and right. And sooner or later you end up with a Flanders and Swan, oh, the English, the English, the English are best. I wouldn't give tuppence for all of the rest rendition or some such nonsense. And if we were once to be convinced that some or all of those claims were not the case, or if someone were to present us with an alternative that was obviously superior, although one can seriously ask the question how they might do that, we'd obviously be ready to change our loyalties if we could be persuaded that it was better. And then we might say, but we haven't, and we're not going to because ours is the best, and so you go round the loop again. There is, of course, also the inertia of whatever life system we've already adopted, the the side of the duel that is the comfortable, nice place to be, albeit wrong, is likely, like being right in Russell's terminology, to be preferred to something alien and strange and challenging, even if it's better, because it takes so much effort to change our minds in that sense. The new is likely to be perceived as risky and frightening and dangerous. After all, our friends, our family, our personal and tribal and national identities, our economic and social security, our political security, our reputation, and all the paraphernalia of our habits of mind are all vested in whatever system it is we happen already to be in. To change all of this looks too hard, looks, as I say, risky and frightening and even dangerous. I might even end up by becoming a different person. Perhaps the last is the most powerful reason that we don't change our minds more regularly, that our self-understanding, our self-image is so dependent on the characteristics we've adopted from our culture and its belief systems and from our own activities and the reputation that we've built up for ourselves that we wouldn't want people to have to come to terms with the fact that we were indeed someone 
different. Otherwise, even we might lose sight of who we are. But there is another danger that comes, I suppose you could say almost paradoxically, from the success and fame of the framework of a particular culture and our place in it, which is that, and you're, you're right to hear a faint echo of Lev Shestov here, that what's going to be expected of it and of us is more of the same. Our fame, reputation, our financial and social success hinge upon our capacity to write novel after novel that's recognisably Charles Dickens or Anthony Trollope or Fyodor Dostoevsky or Count Tolstoy and so forth. It is as if, as if having decided to write once, we are compelled to go on writing in much the same style and vein forever. Success in a career can similarly be restricting, can similarly turn us to stone as we achieve fame. Success and notoriety as a philosopher, scientist, theologian, educator, singer, actor, anything at all, even just in our normal day-to-day -day social interactions with others, where we build up a persona and our relationships with other people depend upon that persona remaining roughly the same, by which we mean predictable, comfortable, understandable, and therefore something that we'd be reluctant to change even if it turned out to be in some sense, and remember when I use the word wrong, I don't mean morally, I mean suboptimal, not the best we can do, in some sense or other wrong. We find ourselves, to use Shestov's simile again, forced to look backwards only to run the risk of being turned to stone by the head of our particular self-generated Medusa which is the trajectory that our lives have taken this far. Our freedom to change, to migrate in our views, to start to say something different is severely restricted by the fact that what we might call our fan base is a fan base based upon what we've already done and become and produced. And it's often very unhappy even to the point of losing faith in us or abandoning us altogether, if and when we start to produce work that's of a different kind. I often, in this context, think of the German theologians, and especially Karl Barth, who were seemingly under enormous pressure from their supporters and disciples to produce more and more volumes of just the same kind of stuff, to such an extent that they were really unable to do anything genuinely innovative, even if they wanted to. Other writers who've enjoyed success in terms of numbers of books published have sometimes, for all that the royalties flow in, ruefully acknowledged that there comes a time where that success is pressure 
of a kind to produce more of the same and indeed pressure not to deviate too much from what's been proved successful in the past. Thank you for listening.